All right. Hey, everybody. It's Nathaniel Avila reporting from uh, Texoma. And Outside, so yeah. I can hear it. Yeah. Uh, and I'm here with Ruby. Hello, Ruby. Hello, everybody, All and right. welcome again to the whole 360. Mm -hmm. So, what what do we what do we got plans for us today? So, I believe this is part five. Right. right? This is part five. Five. Um, we've been doing we've been doing several parts of um, Mexican Mexicans in the U.S. Um, so this is basically, you know, what our podcast is about, is about learning the history of all the different peoples and cultures that have been in the U.S. Um, because we know that in history class, they don't have time to teach you everything, and but we think that it's very important that we learn everything. So we're going to give you the whole 360, and we are going to continue with Mexican-Americans, 1930. Right. Um, yeah, and also think about uh, U.S. history, at least in the eyes of uh, the AP, which I took in AP U.S. history, what is, what is usually uh, taught is usually very black and white. As in, they only really cover African-American history or white people. So now we're going to talk about the Mexican-Americans that I have been doing, which is a thing they don't really and talk about. And we understand, about. I mean, like, we understand why they do, I mean, because those are, like, I guess they feel the most important pieces that mm -hmm. people should learn. I mean, we have the civil rights movement and things like that that people learn about, but it's better for us as a society to learn about all people because mm -hmm. we don't just have um, Caucasians and African-Americans in the U.S. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, so we're going to continue on where uh, after we left off. So last time we saw our heroes, uh, Lulac was just in, was just uh, in, uh, founded, uh, act like very much uh, other political uh, Mexican-American organizations were starting to pop up. And now we're actually starting to, you know, fight back against, you know, being ruled over by Anglo-Americans and being forced to like do their works and stuff and we're like hey we need to we have rights we got to talk about this stuff we got to be treated pretty well when we when we uh, work um, and so now we're finally doing that but then something happened so something happened in September 4th 1929 do you want to know what that is Ruby I didn't hear the last part. September 4th? 1929. 1929. Was it the Great Depression? That is correct, Ruby. The Great Depression started in the United States after a major fall in stock prices that began around September 4th, 1929. And especially with the stock market crash of October 29th, 1929, known as Black Tuesday. Okay, so... So the depression all had a major impact for approximately one and a half million Mexicans and Mexican Americans living in the United States by 1930. Agricultural work fell as one of the depression's first casualties. 
So as white Americans increasingly found themselves unemployed, they grew outraged at the fact that farmers in the Southwest employed Mexican and Mexican-American laborers. So they mounted pressure campaigns on government officials and employers to insist that, they own, that only citizens be hired. And were only citizens hired? Yeah. <laughs> Despite the how long, how long were they able to endure those gruesome, you know, conditions of work? Oh, they wouldn't be able to. Have you ever watched the movie uh, McFarland USA? No. Yeah, it was a, It's about a, a Mexican American cross country team, and Kevin Costner played their coach, who just wait. Yeah. Yeah. So you have. Yeah, I did see that one. Yes, and they showed like the little boy like getting up really early in the morning to go and help in the fields, and then he still had to go to school after that. Yeah. It was just like so much. Oh yeah, and. Uh, it's really good Yeah, and they invited uh, Kevin Costner's character to work the field for one day not even one day half a day and he said i remember he said at the end of that is like i could work the worst job in the history of the world for a, several years and that wouldn't have been as hard as doing what i just did in this amount of time <laughs> so mm -hmm. so basically these um white american citizens had nothing better to do uh, because they were out of jobs and they wanted to find somebody to blame and they chose the Mexican-Americans who were the only ones that, or the Mexicans, sorry, who were the only ones that were doing this job, these tedious yeah. jobs. Yeah, it's Mexicans and Mexican-Americans, so both of them were getting the blame. Uh, because, I, yeah? I seem to remember that we mentioned that there was also other ethnicities that were working the field too with the Mexicans, right? Right, like Filipinos would, would work with them as well. Um, right, okay. Yeah, and they were, they were just jealous. They were just jealous of the fact that they were working and they were not. So, that's why. So, Which is understandable, I mean, because they're all, you know, without a job. Mm -hmm. so you know, tensions are high. Mm-hmm. So the campaigns were actually successful, and as soon as construction companies, stores, factories, and laundries fired their Mexican employees in favors of whites. So the Hoover administration explicitly banned Mexicans for taking jobs away from American citizens. So. Imagine if they tried that shit today. I think they want to. Because I've heard the phrase, they're taking our jobs more than once. Oh yeah, that was big time. That's, that's, I feel like that's always been like a Republican campaign, you know, uh, what do you call those, like, those slogans mm -hmm. that get people's attention. They know they will get people's attention for sure. Oh yeah. So when Franklin Delano Roosevelt was elected president in 1932, there was hope that he would provide relief to the suffering of Mexican-American communities across the United States. This did not materialize. While no New Deal program explicitly barred people by race or immigration status by, from receiving assistance, occupational status was used to exclude Mexican-Americans from receiving depression relief. So we were just straight up not included in the New Deal. So imagine the conditions that white Americans were going through and then it was ten times harder for people who were not white. Right. That 
Well, uh, yeah, it was like pretty good for us because we still had job security, but since uh, white the white people in the area was like lost their jobs, they're like, we need to make sure that they're as worse off as we possibly can. So they went out of their way to make sure that the Great Depression was awful for, for us. Right, and not to say that those jobs we were working, that the Mexicans and the other immigrants were working, very hard, very hard. Oh yeah. So in the Social Security Act of 1935, for example, barred agricultural and domestic workers from both Social Security benefits and unemployment insurance which effectively excluded many African and Mexican Americans from this early social safety net. So at the local level, few Mexican migrant laborers received relief. Since residency restrictions... And so we had, sorry, we had the Mexicans who still had their jobs and the rest of the immigrants who still had their jobs in the field, so what about African Americans? What about black people? They were excluded as well. Like, how hard was it for them during the depression? Um, I don't know, but I can imagine it's just as bad. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, since residency restrictions often required the applicant to have lived in the country for a set amount of time, which excluded migratory laborers. So, without federal or local relief, many jobless Mexican American families adopted. Oh in internarent uh, life, traveling highways in search of work. Some found temporary housing in the U.S. Farm Security Administration work camps uh, where Mexican-American farm families finally received medicine, food, and housing. So because of wi the widespread culture of anti-Mexican uh, Mexican uh, demonization, demonization in the U.S. had resulted in targeting violence against Mexican-American communities. However, the FSA was forced to set up separate camps specifically for Mexican-Americans in order to create safe havens from violent attacks from white Americans. So, what do you think about that, Ruby? The white Americans are at it again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what else is new? Same old story. So they had, to, they had to actually make a completely separate thing for us just to keep us from being attacked for no reason. And we're supposed to be the ones that are so violent. Uh -huh. Oh, yeah. We're so, the bad, bad mm -hmm. so these segregated camps brought together Mexican-American families from various communities, which provided them with the opportunity to organize and discuss many of the main issues of the day including the harsh working conditions within the agricultural sector. The familial connections developed in these camps would serve as a strong factor in farm labor movements later in the century. Yet, while the FSA work, work camps did provide relief for some Mexican-American families, many others had a very different experience in the Depression. Many cities, when a Mexican or Mexican-American family applied for aid, they were sent to designated Mexican boroughs, where repatriation was discussed. So... Do you have any pictures of these supposed boroughs? Um... I think so. Let me see. Here we go. Here's a, here's a photo of 
a couple of Mexican-American kids scavenging for food in a barrel. So. Um, so what do you think? So we see torn clothing. So it's two boys. And their clothing is torn and tattered. And they're both trying to go through scraps of food, I guess, out of this wooden barrel. Yeah. How does it make you feel, Ruby? The way it makes me feel anytime I see children going through something like this, it's just not fair to them. Mm -hmm. And what do you think the government is going to do about, for, about that? For the Mexicans? Uh -huh. Not much. Oh. So, let's see, what else we got? Oh, so for several hundred thousand Mexicans and Mexican-Americans, their lives in the United States during the Great Depression were unbearable. They lost their jobs, were largely denied federal or location relief because of their ethnicity, and faced vilification in politics and in the media as stealing jobs from real Americans. Stealing, but they were given to us willingly. Mm -hmm. What what's a what's a real American? I know, right? <laughs> so, in addition, oh, um, actually, I have the answer to that question. What is it? It's a Native American. <gasps> That's a real American. Oh snap! You tell him. Yeah. So, in addition to these factors, state and county officials across the U.S. began to threaten Mexican and Mexican American families. Who are seeking government aid with deportation. So at the same time, the Mexican government introduced a program to entice ethnic Mexicans back to the country with the promise of free land if they returned. So the Mexican government is trying to help out. So, so all this is the Mexican government mm -hmm. coming in. Yeah. Because I did read that at one point due to you know, white America um, discriminating against Mexicans who still had jobs um, in order for them to, I guess, take over their jobs. They had like a mass deportation that happened. Mm -hmm. Like the U.S. rounded up several Mexicans um, and even some who were U.S. citizens and sent them back to Mexico unwillingly. Is What do you think about that? Is it it's not Have good? Have you gone right? to that part yet? Yeah, I think we're around that part right now. So, okay. like, okay, so all of these factors, overwhelming poverty and fear and threats of the U.S. government officials and the promises of Mexican government of the Mexican government led many to leave the U.S. in a period known as Mexican repatriation, which is what you just said. So these repatriations though and often initiated under threats of deportation were considered voluntary and thus few federal records exist to provide numbers of how many Mexicans left the country during the depression. Nevertheless, INS reported in 1931 that large portions of the nation's Mexican population were leaving the country and some estimates have concluded that just that between just November 1929 and December 1931 about 200,000 Mexicans left the United States, 
While a large number willingly deported to Mexico, a significant number were explicitly pressured to leave through state or local repatriation programs. So these programs responded to the depression's severe effects in Mexican and Mexican-American communities by promoting deportation. <sighs> so some scholars contend that the unprecedented number of deportations and repatriations between 1929 and 1933 was part of an explicit Hoover administration policy and the manufactured climate of fear was meant to coerce Mexicans into self-repatriating. So in fact, local welfare workers did regularly collaborate with immigration officials to provide the names of ethnic Amer Mexicans seeking depression relief so they might be repatriated. <laughs> I was wrong then because I'm talking about an event that happened in 1954. Okay, so, so we're, not, we're not there yet. Yeah, we're not there yet. Yeah. And so, this is, um, how do I see how many? Near, oh, crap. This is like one million people. Yeah, a lot of people. So, yeah. So, so the, uh, how do I say, the discrimination against uh, Mexicans in the U.S. is still going to be going. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, in addition to welfare officials, charitable aid agencies worked with state and local governments to provide names of Mexican and Mexican-Americans, families seeking aid. Charities also sometimes provided money to pay for one-way tickets, tickets to Mexico. In all, the INS formally deported around 82,000 Mexicans from 1929 to 1935. While the remaining 320,000 repatriated were considered voluntary of the total number of people who left the United States during the Mexican repatriation, around half were U.S. citizens. What makes you, how, do you, how does that make you feel? It's not fair. Yeah, like actual U.S. citizens were Fucking kicked off. Bullshit. Okay. Excuse my language. What if somebody came up to you, Ruby, and like, hey, you gotta go to Mexico. You're kicking you out because you're not American. I'm like, okay, says you. Uh, I was born here. Really? Uh, you right? Is it like you're gonna make me go back? You go back. Freaking, if you're not Native American, you're on stolen land. Uh, I'm American. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> So, You're American in the way that you've adopted that whole American superiority. <sighs> so, during the New Deal era, Mexican-American labor unions made significant strides in organizing. However, they still faced outright violence. In September 1933, the Canary, uh, yeah, the Canary Agricultural Workers Industrial Union led a massive strike of cotton pickers in the San Joaquin Valley in California. One contemporary writer later described the mobilization of strikers as an army of brown-skinned people. <laughs> so, um, if you want to know who that is, it's a guy named uh, Raymond P. Berry um, of the Federal Writers Project. <laughs> Uh, so they began, uh, no, uh, so in response, the growers initiated an all-out war to avoid paying the strikers higher wages. 
So they began with a propaganda campaign claiming the strike was being agitated by the radical left. The communist menace is what they call it. So, sounds pretty, sounds like same old Republican thing. Right. <laughs> so rather than the workers themselves who were fighting against uh, uh, endemic low wages and horrifying working conditions. So, next, the farm owners created armed militias. So one Pixley's Farmers Protection Association had 600 enrolled members. The farm owners then went after local business owners in towns, threatening dire consequences to any business which showed, sold the strikers food. So when the farmers evicted all striking pickers and their families from their homes, which were usually shacks in the cotton ranches. So, these look very... There goes Americans using their uh, Second Amendment rights mm -hmm. to go and threaten people. Who, who, are, who, who just want a paid wage and good, decent yeah. living conditions. Right. Like... <laughs> why, why is that so bad? Why is that so terrible? Why is what so terrible? Working a living wage and good working conditions. Because people are greedy, and we've <laughs> known that since the beginning of time when money was introduced and people were no longer trading stuff. Money came uh, into the picture, and power with with money came power, and men just became drunk off of that. They became drunk off of greed and power, and they wanted to do whatever they needed to do stay in that position and so if it meant not giving a few more crumbs to these people that's that's what they were going to do mm -hmm. and they were going to use their tactics that they've been shown that have worked throughout all those years of you know colonizers getting there they use their guns and their weapons and their you know all of the stuff that they have uh, to intimidate other people and do you think it like yeah them. do you think that works well i mean we didn't they didn't have any other reason to be able to fight against them so and and then not just that like there's a lot of people who didn't feel that way i mean they don't they're not drunk off of greed and power you know they just trying to do what they can to have a living a decent living for them and their families, you know. So of course it works because we're not going to be the same as the person who's trying to intimidate us. We're not like that. We're mm. not like them. So yeah, it works. <clears throat> yeah. So <clears throat> let me see. Oh, so when the strikers still refused to break, news began to emerge of mysterious deaths in the cotton fields. The Mexican consulate sent a representative to Tulare County to protect the interests of Mexicans. However, this did not stop local welfare officials from denying the strikers' families food relief during the strike. Law enforcement soon also stepped in to preserve law and order. So quickly deputizing an army of white locals and granting them unlimited power. <laughs> what? Yeah, I don't see what could go wrong with that. Mm -hmm. So. 
The Mexican-American strikers were then openly attacked and three were killed. But their killers were soon released with all charges dropped. Hmm. What do you know? Hmm. So, meanwhile, local and federal relief officials continued to deny the strikers any food relief and soon scores of the strikers' children began to die and mal from malnutrition. The U.S. federal government finally stepped in, establishing an arbitration committee. By the end of October 1933, a compromise was reached and the strike was finally ended. So. What's the compromise? I don't know. Whatever it is, it ended it. <laughs> what, you don't think you don't like it? I mean well even now they're not getting paid well, so I don't I don't I don't I feel like it was not that much. I felt feel like the strikers were probably just like fine, whatever, we'll take whatever you wanna give us because mm -hmm. we're just tired. And mm -hmm. you know their kids were dying. Like what the Yeah. It has to get to that point. Like, come on. Yeah, if you want to learn more about this whole situation, check out Monographs Prepared for the Documentary History of Migratory Farm Labor, 1938, first edition, uh, by Rabin P. Berry. So. so, the San Joaquin Cotton Strike of 1933 received national media coverage at the time, much of it in favor of the farm owners. So the media was on our side. So, however... Latino American labor activists did not make major strides in the 1930s. Luisa Moreno, a Guatemalan immigrant, became the first Latina in U.S. history to hold a national union office when she became the vice president of the United Canary Agricultural Packing and Allied Workers of America. At the time, it was the seventh largest affiliate of the Congress of Industrial Organizations. Another important labor leader during the Depression was a 21-year-old Emma Tanayuka, who was instrumental in one of the most famous conflicts in Texas labor history, the 1938 San Antonio Pecan Shellers Strike at the Southern Pecan Shelling Company. During the strike, literally 2,000 workers at over 130 plants protested a wage reduction of one cent per pound of shell pecans and inhumane working conditions by walking off the job. Uh, Mexica and, uh, and Chicano workers who picketed were clubbed, gassed, arrested, and jailed. And a photo, photo of Tenayuca ran in Time magazine where she was called the forefront of most of its civil commotions. So there's there's that let me uh, show you a photo of her I have a photo of uh, Tenayuka along with her husband uh, Barchi his first name is Homer Barchi so what do you think about the uh, San Antonio Homer. strike what do you think about the Homer strike I mean the uh, San Antonio strike I mean I feel like it's pretty much the same thing that we've been fighting for for, as you can see, years and years and years. But I'm glad that someone is actually, you know, we have activists. We have mm -hmm. people who are fighting the good fight, as I like to say. 
All right, so here she is. Aww. So, yeah, they that, look lovely. Yeah, that's her and with her husband on their wedding day in January 1937. Oh, wow. She don't even have a white dress or nothing. Yeah. Her There's dress no... is like a plaid dress with puppy sleeves and her husband is wearing a nice suit and tie mm -hmm. but it's like one of those suit and ties that everyone was wearing at the time it's like just yeah. something that you would wear outside just just cuz yeah and it looks like they're just inside of a house yeah and it, his his yeah. also his suit has a stain right there oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> but yeah it's Maybe like they were celebrating with drink yeah it's and he spilled some on it Oh snap! A little bit too much. Yeah, it's, it's just like it, it's it's just a little nothing super fancy. I'm digging this cowboy hat in the background there. Yeah, I see there. the cowboy hat in the background. Yeah, and the super crooked photo or picture. But yeah, it, this, that's. I thought that was part of the wallpaper. Oh, it's part of the. It might be. I I thought I don't know. But yeah, there's there there's a. There's Tenayuka, who was one of the best, uh, one of the biggest labor activists uh, in the 1930s. So yeah, very lovely lady. You think you guys would have been pals? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so let me see. She was 21 years old also, by the way, when that photo was taken. I know, that's so, like, at that young of me, and I know that there are probably some activists who are even younger than that, but it's just... Oh, yeah. Like, so, um... how do I say, endearing to know that there are young people, you know, who are willing to stand up for other people. Yeah. Oh, like, um, like Greta Thunberg. She was, she's a yes. huge activist for, uh, climate change and all yeah. that kind of stuff. Against climate change. And also and we got... Grown-ass men trying to talk shit to her. Yeah, they're all like. <laughs> yeah, and then we also have like people like uh, Hog and Rodriguez, who were like gun control activists, who survived uh, Stoneman Douglas, and people. And people who cannot relate to them or the work that they do because they've never been in a situation where there's a school shooting. So. Yeah, and their only defense against them is uh, is just. You're just stupid kids. I don't want to get to listen to you. <laughs> right. Stupid kids. I don't know anything. They know. I, I think they... Got in, I, got in lived through something traumatic. I think they know a, they a thing or two. Died. I think they know a thing or two about getting shot at. And I'm... Right. And... I read this thing on Twitter where it says, Lacking empathy for people who have different life experiences it is very character fly. I would agree. So, despite the intense anti-Mexican sentiment uh, per, uh, pervading the country in the Depression, the era also saw the first Mexican-American and Latino U.S. United States senators in the history of the country. So now we're finally getting Mexican-American senators and congressmen and congresspeople. So finally, people are getting entering the legislative branch. So Senator uh, Octaviano Lorazolo, <clears throat> let's try that again. Senator Octavio Lorazolo was elect elected 
to the U.S. Senate in 1928, but he died in office three months later. Senator Dennis Chavez first served in the United States House of Representatives from 1931 to 1935 until he was appointed to a full term in the U.S. Senate in 1934. When Chavez was sworn in, six white senators allegedly stood abruptly, turned their backs to Chavez, and angrily left the chamber. So, what do you think about that? I think it's kind of childish. Yeah, what a bunch of snowflakes. <laughs> <laughs> so during, this time, during his time in office, Senator Chavez was a major proponent of the New Deal, and he was at least partially successful at securing benefits for New Mexicans, what became known, as, known in New Mexico as the Latino New Deal, was a rare extension of New Deal benefits to Mexican Americans. So in the state, newly funded education programs improved literacy rates and vocational programs revived the production of Hispano craft goods like Santero artwork, woven goods, and furniture. WPA agents taught New Mexicans how to market the items to tourists. Later, Senator Chavez became known for his civil rights advocacy as he fought to expand notions of American citizenship. So in 1935, a federal judge in New York upheld an immigration officer's decision to deny the new naturalization petitions of three Mexicans on the grounds that they were not white, but instead individuals of Indian and Spanish blood. So, so whiteness. Seems like we would have more rights than. <laughs> <laughs> So, whiteness, which had been a requirement for naturalized citizenship since 1790, remains so until 1940. So, if the 1935 ruling had been upheld, it would have rendered a ma the majority of Mexicans ineligible for citizenship. So, President Roosevelt, who had only replaced Mexican in, in, uh, interventionalist policies, such as the Roosevelt uh, Corollary, and his own diplomatic approach of the good neighbor policy was concerned that denying Mexicans the opportunity to naturalize would hurt Mexico-US nation relations. He thus urged the State Department to quiet the controversy, pressuring the judge to reverse the decision. The Labor Department issued guidance to its border officials that in all future cases, Mexican immigrants will be classified as white so what do you think about that well, that's where that came from mm -hmm. so that makes sense now so he did he did a good thing in thinking about that because the u.s is going to need the allyship of mexico yeah coming up yeah and it's it don't you think it's kind important of important event that is coming yeah. up in the world. Yeah, I mean, you, also, do you think it's kind of like not that great that the only reason why he did that was because he just didn't want Mexico to get mad? <sighs> I don't know. I mean, I feel like because of who he is, how he was brought up, I mean, I understand why that would probably be the only reason why mm -hmm. he would do that um, and not because of the people that yeah. he cared about. Yeah. Um, 
But yeah. I'm just I'm glad that 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 that's something that they're thinking about. At right. least. Um, I wish that it wouldn't have uh, happened in that way, where it had to be that everybody was categorized as white because that's literally that's not right. <laughs> mm-hmm. But it was the only way that for anyone to accept it. Because right. being white, you have to be white Which in order to get citizenship. Sad. That was the thing. Right. Um, sad that you have to. Sad that you have to like be of a different identity, you know, and not your own identity. Yeah, and also uh, Roosevelt. This Roosevelt was a Democrat as well. So I just want to clear that up. So in April, 1938, Luisa Moreno. A group of Mexican-American labor activists, including Josefina Fierro, uh, Eduardo Quevedo, and Bert Garona, organized the inaugural conference of El Congreso de Pueblos de Hablan Española in Los Angeles, an organization meant to promote a broad agenda of working-class empowerment, civil rights, and Latino unity. In their founding constitution, the workers also endured the rights of Mexicans to live and work in the U.S. without having to fear coerced deportation. El Congreso also never promoted assimilation, in direct contradiction to other organizations like LULAC, which focus on the desegregation of employment, housing, education, and all public facilities. So El Congreso was notable for their early stance promoting immigrant worker immigrant rights despite the widespread culture of demonization occurring during the Mexican repatriation in fact Moreno spoke at the American Committee for the Protection of the Foreign Born uh, critiquing the exploitation of Mexican workers saying Mexicans make a barren land fertile for new crops and greater riches these people are not aliens they have contributed their endurance, sacrifices, youth, and labor to the Southwest. What do you think? I think that was pretty much spot on. Yes, that's true. Mm-hmm. Without the Mexicans or the immigrants laboring the fields, what would have happened? I guess we'll never know. I don't know. There would have been no supply to meet the demand, right? Yeah. But then after this, a major event in the world happened that would change the entire aspect of the 20th century forever. And it still has the remnants going on today. So, Ruby, do you want to tell us what that is? We're going into now the first, oh sorry, so second world war. Mm-hmm. The, um, so. I wanted to say that in 1940, because we are, you're talking about everything that's going on in the U.S., um, I've been kind of giving some notes here on what's been going on in Mexico, mm. um, because we want, we want the whole 360, right? So around in the 1940s, um, Mexico obtained a new successor in 1940, which is uh, Manuel Avila, and he is also wanting to forge a friendlier relationship with the U.S., um, you know, because we are neighboring countries, you know. So, um, 
with this friendlier alliance or friendlier relationship, once uh, the bombing of Pearl Harbor happened mm -hmm. in the U.S., Mexico declares war on the Axis powers um, so that they can help the United States in this world war. World war sorry. Um, so during that time, we have Mexican pilots who are fighting against the Japanese forces in the Philippines, serving alongside the U.S. Air Force. In 1944, uh, Mexico agrees to pay U.S. oil companies $24 million plus interest for properties that were expropriated in 1938. And then the following year, Mexico joins the newly created United Nations. So we have like a period of allyship between the U.S. and Mexico, even though you know, Mexicans have been treated like shit in the U.S., you know, we still become allies and we fight this war together. Mm -hmm. So imagine what that would have been like if the U.S. didn't have Mexico as an ally. And that's pretty much um, up until like 1946, so that's I don't have anything else to add until after the war. So if yeah. you have anything to add during the war, go ahead. Yeah. So yeah, like I mean, during this time, I remember like in the past, Mexico was considered to be the enemy. They were the enemy, especially after the Texas Revolution and the Mexican-American War. They were like, but they're like the bad guys. Um, but now, in during World War II, now we come together. Yeah, you're you're muted. Oh uh, no, go ahead. Go oh. Ahead. I said, uh, now during World War II, now we have a greater enemy. Um, now we have a common enemy in the Nazis so that we need to defeat uh, as well. So. I said it has to come to that, right? Mm -hmm. Like, why can't we just all get along? I don't understand. Why can't that's we all been just like get the along? Biggest, that's been like the biggest question that I've had of my life, I can honestly say, because. One of the reasons why I wanted to do this podcast um, is the hope that once we have other guests, you know, that tell the Native American history, the African American history, all the other culture histories, that we all can see how we're the same. You know, we all want a good life. We all want to be happy. We all want to have a, our family, you know, we want, to, we want to provide for our family, and I hope that we can all, like everybody that sees this, can realize that we all are really all the same, and we need to just take care of each other, because we all, you know, need the same thing, and we all live on this one planet, the only one we have, and we should be coming together to fight the one common enemy that we all have, which is climate change, which is, you know, our earth literally going to shit. <laughs> That's what we should all be fighting together against. Yeah, but they don't want to do that because they want the money. <laughs> always been the money. Yeah. The greed and the power. Mm -hmm. yeah. We got it. We should focus and on. So, yeah. yeah. And so that's the, that's the main issue is that 
That's why grown as men who have been running the world, you know, in different countries, why they just simply cannot come together and say, hey, we need to all, you know, work together and, and tackle this problem, like this big problem. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. and, and live in peace. I mean, like, world peace really, if you think about it, is, is, is attainable if we just had everybody working together. Mm -hmm. If we just had everybody not worrying about greed and power, and we actually had people who just cared about the people living on the planet. Yeah, if we focus on things that we have in common instead of what we are, instead of our differences. Exactly. Yeah, that was from Pokemon. Because when it boils down to it, you know, like we, like I said, we we all do have a lot of things that we share that are, you know, that are in common. There are very very little differences that that we have. I mean, we all bleed red. We all die. We all are born. We all are, you know, die. At one point or another, so we're not that different. Mm -hmm. So, when the U.S. entered World War II against the Axis powers on December seventh, nineteen forty-one, after the attack on Pearl Harbor, several hundred thousand Latino men served in the U.S. military during the war, about five hundred thousand of whom were Mexican American. So, unlike their African-American counterparts who mostly served in segregated units, most American -American, Mexican-American soldiers served in integrated units in World War II. World War II. Um, though recent research has discovered at least one unit composed entirely of Mexican-Americans. So the majority of World War II Mexican-American service members were second-generation Americans who had grown up in the anti-American hysteria of the Great Depression. Thus, the transition for them into the role of an American soldier could at sometimes be surprising. One man, Private Armando Flores of Corpus Christi, Texas, remembered the shock he felt the first time he was ever referred to as an American soldier. Because he was called, because he recalled later, nobody ever called me an American before. So. What do you think about that whole thing? Yeah, you had to die, like literally be in danger of mm. losing your life for you to be considered that. Like, mm. And I don't like that either because like that word patriot gets thrown around a lot. Mm. Like, oh, you're not a true patriot. And it's like, you can be a patriot and still want what's best for people in your country, mm -hmm. you know? You can be a patriot and still question the rulers, you know, who are making all the decisions. Like You're supposed to. I, I don't get that. You're yeah. very much I supposed mean, that, to. Isn't that, isn't that what being a patriot is? Like, you know, worrying about the people in your country and wanting mm -hmm. good for your country? Yeah, but then you're like, okay, then I'll help the people in this country. And then they're like, no, that's no, yeah. socialism. <laughs> so, yeah. And it's crazy because, like, our, our, um, how do I say, our economic uh, institutions are not just capitalism. Like, we have 
capitalism mixed with socialism, mm-hmm. and a lot of people don't don't see that. You know, they think that it's just capitalism all the way, and they actually think that that's better. Like, yeah, that's better for the people who have businesses, but not everybody has a business. <laughs> not yeah. everybody owns a business, mm-hmm. and not everybody's going to. You know? Yeah, I mean, so that's... why not help people? Mm. Yeah. But I guess I'm just a big fat snowflake. <laughs> I care too much. You care too much. You should be like us I care too much. who commit domestic terrorism whenever things don't go our way. That's what a right. true not snowflake would do. <laughs> so, um, let me see. So according to some scholars, the U.S. government made efforts during the war to address some of the domestic issues facing the Mexican-American community. These efforts were part of an overreaching campaign to win broad domestic support for the war effort. So perhaps not surprisingly, the new, this new feeling of wartime social inclusion created a strong sense of patriotic pride within the Mexican-American community. On a single two-block stretch of Silvis, Illinois, 45 Mexican-American boys and men volunteered to fight. It was dubbed in the press as Hero Street. Crazy, right? That you would would see that happening because it's like, look at all the shit that they put your ancestors and your family through. And yet you still have the courage to fight for this country that really has never called you one of its own. Like that just shows how, how do I say, I don't want to say humble or what's the word that I'm looking for. That just shows a lot about their character. You know, that they would be willing to raise arms and fight for this country that really has never called them their own. But to them, they're like, this is my home. Yeah. And And now they're- And I'm gonna fight. The, for the greater good because you know we definitely don't want the Nazis to mm-hmm. take over <laughs> yeah <laughs> we'll and, all be dead <laughs> yeah and now they're being finally feeling that they be like they are being included now that they belong after being demonized for so long during the Great Depression um, yeah. so let me show you a photo of a group of Mexican-American soldiers in World War two Here they are. There they are. Very happy and proud. Yeah, look at those smiles. They all look, they're all smiling. There's not, there's not one that, I mean, maybe this guy at the very top was kind of like, hmm, but <laughs> I think he just didn't know the picture was coming or something. Yeah. But literally, there's like, one, two, one, two, three, four, five, six. There's 17 soldiers in this photo, Mexican-American servicemen, and they're all smiling. Mm-hmm. Like, so happy to be fighting in this war. Yeah, and happy to be finally be... I hope, yeah? I hope most of them made it back. Yeah, yeah. And they're happy to be finally be called an American. Right. And this is different from the African-American perspective because I believe the African-Americans who fought in World War II were promised, you know, so many things that never, never came into fruition. Mm-hmm. 
No, they were, uh, African Americans were segregated in this one. Um, Mexican Americans. Even in in the war, they were segregated. Mm -hmm. Right? Right. During the war and them fighting, they had to be in separate ranks and things like that. Mm -hmm. For Mexican Americans, we were integrated. Like, we fought with the white, white people. Right. I cannot wait to have our guests on for, you know, the African American side. Mm hmm so during the war, Mexican American soldiers gained renown for their bravery. At least eleven Mexican Americans received the Medal of Honor during the war. One, Joe P. Martinez, who was a beet harvester before the war, led a strategically critical charge up a snow-covered mountain in Atu Island. He died during the action and became the first draftee to win the Medal of Honor posthumously. Another, uh, Silvestre Herrera. Uh, <clears throat> Silvestre Herrera explained his single-handed attack on a Nazi hold saying I am a Mexican-American and we have a tradition we're supposed to be men perhaps the most famous Mexican-American serviceman was Guy Gabaldon an 18-year-old from East LA who had been adopted by a Japanese-American family at the age of 12 so when his family was sent to an internment camp Gabaldon joined the Marines. He was sent to the Pacific to the Pacific Theater and saw action in Saipan. In the Battle of Saipan, Gabaldon killed 33 enemy combatants. And then, using his ability to speak conversant Japanese, Gabaldon convinced the surrounding remaining officers to surrender. The 800 Japanese soldiers surrendered peacefully and Gabaldon earned the nickname the Pied Piper of Saipan. Wow. Mm-hmm. That is a story. Well, you should make that into a movie. Seriously. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Someone's going to listen to this. <laughs> oh, they, they did make a movie. <laughs> oh, wait, let's see. Oh, they did? Yeah. So, although he was recommended the Medal of Honor, Gabaldon was instead awarded the Silver Star, which I, I guess is something. And there was a film that was made in 1960 called Hell to Eternity, which was based on, on Gabaldon. So, if you guys want to watch Hell this, yeah, check out Hell to Eternity by Phil Carlson. So, check. What can you, what is it called? Hell to Eternity 1960? Yeah. yeah, Hell to Eternity 1960 by Phil Carlson. So, Definitely. yeah. Check that out. Yeah. And that is where we'll end it for today. Um, we're going to talk more about World War II because there's still so much about, in, about World War II. It is such a major event in history. We There's still a lot to talk about. So, uh, yeah. we're going to go we'll into that. We'll get into that 1954 mass deportation that happened because. The deportations just keep happening, apparently. Yeah. Hopefully, we'll we'll be finished with uh, World War Two by then, uh, and then we'll get into oh, yeah, the nineteen fifties. We'll finish World War Two, and then people will forget about all the sacrifices that Mexican Americans made during the war, and then they'll be like, "Hey, y'all are still the bad guys, and we still don't like y'all." That seems to be the pattern. That happened in World War One. That happened in the Civil War as well. So yeah, so next time we'll talk about uh, women's role in uh, in, war, in the wartime effort. Uh, we're going to talk about the Sleepy Lagoon murder, the Zoot Suit riots, 
and the post-war. So we're going to talk about that um, next time, and hopefully we'll get into the mid-20th century. Uh, but, for, but for next time, we're going to be focusing on the rest of World War II. So, yeah, that was pretty interesting. What do you think about all this, all this stuff that happened uh, overall in terms of the Great Depression and the beginning of World War II? Um, I mean, I really hate that a lot of people had to be hurt, a lot of kids had to go hungry and die. Um, it's also in the war, I mean, you know, people died in the war as well, and it really just took uh, the war happening for there to be some sort of relief for our Mexican-American brothers and sisters. I gotta it saddens keep... me, but I feel like it's important for mm -hmm. us to talk about it. Right. I gotta keep on moving my head so people can see the logo in the middle. <laughs> so. It's a Mexican American flag. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But it looks, it does kind of look similar to another flag. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so I have to keep on moving my head Not so people that can see. Flag. Yeah. Not that flag. Ever. Ever. No. Especially. Um, those, you know, what we were talking about patriots. How do you feel about patriots who fly a Nazi flag that here in the U.S.? Like, how, how, what is that? How, not ironic, but how, how backwards is that? That is very bad. They keep on flying Nazi really flags and, and Confederate flags, both countries that we fought against, America fought against. And beat. Right. So it's yeah. it's so dumb what they're doing. And they're flying uh, Don't Tread on Me flags while flying the Thin Blue Line flag, which are both very contradicting things. So, very. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, that was, uh, that was this thing. I so hope America is very confusing to us, guys. Mm-hmm. Very, very confusing. Yeah. <laughs> but that's it. That's that was uh right. that Thank was the end of this you. part. That was the Great Depression. Thank you for joining us. Then, yep. Everyone who has joined us. Yeah. And who is eager to learn about all the facts yeah. surrounding America's history. Yeah. It's an ugly we history. We will be back but... with more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We will be back with more. We'll definitely be back with more. And it's not to say it's not to say that people haven't learned, you know, from from that point to now. Like I'm very 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 grateful for the people who have accepted the nasty dark you know past of their ancestors and they're wanting to move you know to do better and be better mm -hmm. that's what we all need to be doing right and it is an ugly ugly history but it's something that we have to learn in order to avoid these things in the future right right so we will be back we will be back part six part six all right i've been nathaniel avila Ruby Rodriguez. Yep. And I'll see you. We'll see you guys next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to a Vision Podcast, home of Wacky Talkies, The Kingdom, Evil Exists, and many more.